Thank you for downloading the Inspire Me lecture podcast brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Dr. Zara Nanu, Chief Executive Officer at Gap Square. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for having me here today. Uh, hopefully, I can provide somewhat of an inspirational session. I was just thinking, can't believe it was just about 10 years ago when I had my PhD from UWE. So I'm, I'm delighted to be here today and thank you very much for the kind invitation. So as Peter has mentioned, I currently run a company called GapSquare. GapSquare is a company that uses technology to help large businesses around the world to look at and understand pay equity issues, diversity and inclusion issues, and take decisions around pay and around policies and around HR recruitment and career progression that can ensure that talent feels valued, that uh, diverse talent thrives and that companies can attract top talent and young people within their organizations. We've started the company uh, five years ago when the World Economic Forum was saying it will be 217 years for the gender pay gap to close. At the same time, the World Economic Forum was saying that it will be 2030 by the time we're all in self-driving cars that it will be 2030 by the time we wave people off to Mars. And yet somehow, when we're there in 2030, we are still 200 years away from achieving pay parity and equality at work. So we thought, is there a way in which we can utilize technology to help businesses accelerate progress within the space of diversity and inclusion and create pay equity for everyone um, so that diverse talent can thrive and feel valued within the contemporary uh, modern workplace. Now, the entrepreneurship journey over the past five years hasn't been easy, despite how interesting and exciting it's been to help businesses around the world to look at these issues. So I thought I'd structure today around looking into what lessons I've learned from this journey over the past few years. So lesson number one is very much about following your dreams. At the, fr from the very beginning, from the days that I've had my PhD from UWE, I knew that human rights and social justice is something I'm really passionate about. Women's rights is something I'm really passionate about. And yet in the context of human rights and women's rights, uh, we always talk about words like empowerment and a lot of the rights focus on civic rights, uh, on kind of empowering women to find their voice, yet very little comes down to economic rights. There's very little work that is being done is being done around the world to ensure that women have access to economic rights and women have access to money. Because at the end of the day, the word empower, power within empower is related to money too. And if women don't have equal access to that money in the economy, that's not real empowerment. So following my dreams meant that I wanted to focus on human rights and social justice with the lens of ensuring women participate in the economy and have access to that money and to that power. And yet the kind of the context in the world about five years ago was that if you do something around human rights and if you do something around uh, social justice, it needs to be for free. I actually vividly remember the first interview I had with uh, a Financial Times journalist who said, well, you're doing work around pay equity and around closing the gender pay gap for businesses. Shouldn't this be for free? Because you, this is a social issue and social issues should be done for free. And actually what, I, what we strongly believed is that companies need to put their money where their mouth is in terms of achieving equality, achieving parity um, and creating a world that is fair and a future of work that, that works for everyone, not just for one category of people. So following my dreams has meant actually debunking a lot of the facts that 
human rights and social justice are a social thing and not an economic thing. Uh, so that was lesson number one. Lesson number two has been that it's never too late. Um, when I had my A-levels more than 20 years ago, I'm not going to actually say exactly how many more than 20 years ago would give up my age too much. Um, but uh, if you would have told me but that by the time I'm 40, I'm going to be doing statistical regression models and I'm going to be looking at how we can utilize statistical regression models and maths to understand pay, to understand inequality and correct social rights and human rights issues, I would have laughed in your face because maths, in my view, and statistics and data has had nothing to do with achieving that equality. So my trajectory hasn't exactly been around maths. It hasn't exactly been around tech or data. And yet here I am now running a tech company that utilizes data to help employers around the world to identify issues around creating more fairness at work. So that kind of the big lesson for me from from that has been that it's never too late. Lesson number three has been about thinking win-win. There have been a lot of times when creating progress in this space and, and running a company that is focused on creating social justice and human rights has been around taking people on a journey, including taking people on the journey who don't believe that human rights are a thing, who don't believe that the gender pay gap exists, or who perhaps don't believe that race and ethnicity pay gaps don't exist within an organization. And we can only achieve full parity if we take everybody on this journey of closing the gender pay gap. We can only be there what, nine years from now, watching people fly off to Mars, driving in their self-driving cars with a closed pay gap if we take everyone with us on a journey. So it's about identifying what does a win look for everyone and how can we make sure that this kind of achieving fairness at, at work and achieving fairness in the world is a win-win for everyone so that we can all come along on, on this journey and taking allies on this journey is very important. Oftentimes when we talk about the gender pay gap or when we talk about race and ethnicity pay gap, these conversations sometimes happen in a silo. Like you, you go into a room and it's a room of women within that workplace talking about the gender pay gap or it's a room with people of diverse ethnic and, and racial backgrounds talking about ethnicity pay gaps or kind of the intersectionality of both. But what we need is we need the large majority to be involved in this conversation. We don't, we can't afford to have these happen in silos. We need everyone on board with this topic. So lesson number three has been, uh, lesson number four actually, um, has been that my company is not my baby. Oftentimes in running my business, whenever I talk to people, they always say, or oh, is this like, like having your baby, is this is the company your baby, is work your baby? When you start a project, everybody's thinking this ties in so much with who you are. And it, it absolutely does. Like I couldn't untangle creating fairness and, and working for social justice from my personal life. But at the same time, untangling them is very important because if you spend too much in this and you think about your work and you think about your company as your baby, it ties you too much into this place uh, and, and then you don't give your brain uh, a chance to rest. And giving your brain a chance to rest and have a break from this and being able to 
take like a distant look into what you're doing as a company allows you to actually be more refreshed and spend more time in a, in a refreshed mind in it. So your company is not your baby. Your personal life is where you may have or we, you may not have babies. I have two young daughters, so I have enough on that front. But your company is your work and it's important to make that clear distinction between work and personal life for for your own personal sanity. That's what I found for my own personal sanity. Um, lesson number five has been that you have to always surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. And sometimes that's hard because especially if you if you run a project and it's your project or you run a company and it's your company, you want to be the smart person. Yet you can only achieve a lot of the things if you bring in people who are smarter than you. There's a lot of things that are going to ride on trust because if they're smarter than you in an area, then you're going to have to trust that what they're saying is the right thing. And so building that network of smarter people around you can ensure success for whatever it is that you're doing. And I, I found that quite quickly, especially because I'm running a tech company in the data space using statistical regression models um, to look at pay, reward and compensation. Neither of those are my background. I needed people who are smarter than me in all of those areas. I needed people who are smarter than me in statistics, smarter than me in reward and compensation, smarter than me in using tech and building software as a service that can then be used by companies around the world to um, make change and create more pay equity, create more pay fairness and create fair workplaces. So this has been a, a key lesson for me, actually, and, and one that I learned from very early on. Always surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Lesson number six has been prioritizing is very important and always identify which are the first things that need to come first. And I'm a very big fan of the 2080 rule where there's this, this rule that says that 20% of what you do will generate 80% of the impact. It's just making sure that you focus your time and attention on that 20%. For someone like me, who's running a business and, and is running a company, that 20% has always been about the people, focusing my attention and prioritizing people within the company so that we can deliver the objectives and the outcomes we set out to do. Um, so prioritizing is a big part of my day uh, and, and a big part of everything that I do and sometimes very interesting things and exciting things that I want to do might not necessarily be priorities that I need to focus my time on. So I have to sometimes let go of that and make sure that my time and attention is focused. Um, I'd really recommend the 2080 rule. It, it, it has been life changing for many things that I've been doing and it ensures that you don't burn out spending your time doing a lot of um, doing a lot of work uh, when uh, you can actually focus your attention and deliver high quality on the most important priorities. So this is le lesson number six, first things first. Lesson uh, number seven uh, is about letting it go and actually ties in with the previous point really well. So sometimes when you want to achieve something, you have a lot of things that you need to that make up that achievement, right? A lot of steps that you want to do. Um, and 
it, a lot of those steps will be interesting things that you want to do and others will be things that you really want to do but actually not that interesting and exciting so it becomes about letting go of control of the interesting things passing them on to someone else on your team comes back to that whole point about surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you and you can you can trust um, and making sure that you can let go of those so you can focus your attention on things that matter. Letting it go has been an important lesson for me this year because actually in July 2021, we have sold the company to Expert HR, which is part of a bigger global company that's going to allow Gap Square to scale on an international scale and take our product globally and, and to the US market, the EU market and into Asian markets. And um, Letting go has been a big part of that because as a business owner, as a founder, as someone who's started with a vision and an idea that we can use tech to create pay parity, I've had to let completely let go of control into a larger organization with the purpose of ensuring that the business continues and thrives and actually scales at, at a rate that we've always wanted it to scale and becomes more mainstream. I've always kind of tried to prepare myself for the fact that I'm going to have to let it go at one point uh, by always thinking of this story where this, this ancient king uh, had two ladies come up to him with a baby saying, both both women claiming that it's their baby. So the king said, what we're going to do now is we're going to cut the baby in two, you each get half each, and that way everyone's satisfied. The woman who it was not the mother said, yeah, that's fine, let's cut the baby in two. And the woman who was actually the mother said, no, don't cut the baby in two, give it to this other mom, at least she can help it grow, just don't, don't cut it in two. So that's how you, kind of the stories about how you, when you really care for something to thrive, you will let it go into the hands of someone else. And that's been a big lesson of the summer of 21 for me in Gap Square. So after lesson number seven is lesson number eight is um, learning is power. Learning has been something I've done for the past five years of running Gap Square more so than it has been in, in doing my PhD um, at a desk at UWE. Uh, it, learning happens every day and it's such a valuable and important tool. It's the most important experience of, of running a company, of working, of, of learning, of getting a degree. It's part of life and it's part of what enriches life. Uh, and I've taken this as a massive exercise actually from UWE that learning is something that I really enjoy, that I enjoy applying. And learning is power because it gives you knowledge, because it gives you access to a network of people who are cleverer and smarter than you, and because it helps you build things that you really want to do. And if if that matches up with building a work that a world that is fair, a world that is um, suitable for the 21st century when we have where we have companies that care for their people, that care for the environment, that care for sustainability, then that learning really becomes even more powerful than that. Um, lesson number one, nine is actually tied into this uh, because the most I've learned over the past five years has been through failure. And this comes back to the theme of the lecture in terms of, of resilience in the face of adversity is that failure is a part of running any, any company and any business and rejection and failure go hand in hand here. And we've had many a times where we 
try to go and raise investment so that we can scale the company and we would get no as an answer when we try and go to talk to businesses about how they can use our software to create more fairness at work and there was no as an answer where we've built kind of elements of the software that we thought are going to work really well and actually they didn't work that well. where we, for instance, thought that um, data science is going to help solve pay equity. So when we started the company, we thought actually tech is a great solution to helping businesses close pay gaps because we can bring data science and artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence is unbiased. And then we apply that artificial intelligence to data and it solves everyone's problems and we close the pay gaps. And we the, the, the hasn't been a bigger failure than that yet in our company because data science is biased. Data itself that companies hold is biased. So if you look at data in HR reward and compensation, a lot of the what the data will tell you is that white middle-aged men are more suitable for leadership roles, that you have lower paid women in less paid roles and kind of support roles that don't really make it into the executive boardroom. So that data is very biased. And if we apply artificial intelligence and data science to it, what we get is accelerated bias. We get recommendations around promoting more men. We get recommendations around uh, recruiting more men into tech roles that are higher paid. So that those have been the kind of failures where we've made assumptions, but they turned out to be wrong. And actually, it's the best thing that has happened because we've learned through those failures that things can go wrong and we've been able to correct them. I mean, how boring would life be if we never failed? we'd never learn anything. We'd just continue as as we did. We'd probably still be riding horses uh, and, and riding around in carriages. So failure has been my best friend over the past five years. And I hope to make it an even closer friend over the next few years. And it's been a massive learning curve and, and a massive kind of tool for learning through failure. And I'd really kind of encourage everyone to have a look at what their relationship with failure and their relationship with rejection to see how they can utilize that to bring out a lot of strengths within what they're doing. Lesson number 10 is really a lesson that doesn't really need a lot of explanation, but it's one that I like the most, and that's go big or go home. Um, it's been kind of our mantra from day one of starting the business. Um, when we started GapSquare, we became part of an accelerator uh, and we did a few courses around how to run a business, how to write a business plan, and always the kind of the advice was around how it's best to go uh, for lower hanging fruit, go for the lower hanging fruit, build a prototype of a product, then start talking to larger companies. And what we thought actually was that it's better to, when you look at the lower hanging fruit, everyone's going for the lower hanging fruit. Everybody's competing in this space. But if we look for the higher hanging fruit, there are only a few companies that make it past that lower hanging fruit. So once you start thinking about larger companies like Accenture, like London Met Police or or IDC, they actually have less competitors and less of a competition in trying to go and capture that market. So we decided to go for the high hanging fruit straight away and skip the kind of the lower hanging fruit to begin with. Um, and that has worked out really well for us. And we really, uh, it, it has paid off and this continues to be a big mantra for Gap Square, go big or go home. Now, in terms of what the future holds, 
The World Economic Forum has released a report in November 2020 talking about the jobs of the future and where the world of work is heading in the next five years. Uh, and they've released a list of 20 jobs on the increase and 20 jobs on the decrease. So in terms of the 20 jobs on the increase, of course, it will come up as no surprise. There's jobs in IT, in tech, Internet of Things, data science, artificial intelligence. And these jobs are very much male dominated. And they're also very highly paid. On average, they're over 50,000 a year for those jobs. If you look at the jobs on the decrease over the next five years that are going to pretty much disappear, data entry clerks, admin and executive secretaries, accounting and bookkeeping, business services and admin, postal services and clerks. These jobs are on the decline. They're very much female dominated uh, and they're very much on the disappearing from the economy kind of pathway over the next five years. So what we want to do over the next five years is focus on our attention on how we can rethink jobs, how we can rethink the future of work, how we can use data to understand what tasks are being performed within what jobs so that we can ensure both men and women have access equal access to the economy, equal access to different kind of jobs, uh, creative opportunities and opportunities for growth. Um, and if anyone's interested in following our journey, being part of our journey and working with us on that, please do get in touch with me on LinkedIn or drop me a note on email. I'm happy to always have conversations with anyone about it. And I'm equally happy to answer any questions that come up in this. I actually prefer questions because it just feels like I'm talking to myself as I'm sat here in this room by myself. Uh, so I look forward to all of your questions. Thank you for listening. Zara, thank you so much uh, for those top 10 lessons. Yes, plenty of questions coming in, so we'll go straight uh, to them. The first one is, how can uh, how can you know who is smarter than you? Well, that that's, that's an interesting one. The way I can talk about the way I went about identifying people who are smarter than me. And if I was looking into a space, I was trying to identify who writes papers on this, who speaks at conference on these issues, who uh, is like leading in terms of thought leadership on, on these issues and how I can get in touch with them. And, and it ties back into one of my points around go big or go home. There's no one who is not reachable. So if, if for instance, the CEO of Accenture is the person who talks most about pay equity and using tech to address pay equity, and they're really smart in it because they have a statistical background, then connecting with them on LinkedIn and establishing rapport, because this is also something you're passionate about, actually works out more often than not. So it's about identifying who those thought leaders are and going for them. And actually, the interesting finding for me has been that once you start zooming in into a sector and identifying top leaders around the world, that world becomes quite small. You start noticing the same people in different parts of the world, writing books, thought leadership pieces, articles, um, being on, on boards for different companies and, and taking those issues forward. And that's how you identify them. Great, thanks, Aaron. The next one is, uh, what mistake did you learn the most from? So uh, all of all of them, <laughs> a lot of mistakes, hundreds of mistakes. Um, I think the one about how we thought data is going to solve everything when in fact we learned that data can actually create more problems has been a, a big learning, a, a big learning mistake for, for me. And on, on a similar line, how do you motivate yourself after a failure? Oh, it's 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 kind of especially failure ties into rejection it's about saying actually i'm i'm going to prove that i that that 
what I'm trying to say is right. And especially if you tie it into something you're passionate about. And then if you look about, if you look at issues that can make the world a better place and the impact and the change that you can have on actually making that world a better place, that is a big motivator. And also, once we started having customers and we started companies like London Med Police and Accenture and Babcock and Serco use our software, when you start seeing them take specific steps to address pay equity, take specific steps to use data to create more diversity and inclusion, that's a bigger motivator and it actually trumps any kind of rejection or failure because you start to see impact. Next question is, uh, when did you realize you wanted to work in tech? Oh, it was the, it was actually, I'm going to be honest with you, it was the most random thing, but Everybody was doing things in tech and data science was such a buzzword, buzzword that I thought there must be something about it. Uh, and then the more I looked into tech, the more I understood that if we want to create scalable global solutions, then they need to be in tech because they can be adopted by anyone anywhere in the world. And if we went the kind of the consultancy route, then we would need more people and we'd be able to do smaller pieces of work for companies one at a time. And we wanted scale and, and tech offered that scale. The next one, when it comes to letting go of a company, do you find it hard to find motivation without the backing of a long term project or focus? Well, so from the example of Gap Square, I've stayed on as CEO and I plan to stay for a few years more to ensure that we grow and we scale the business to the scale that we want it to be. Uh, and we want to make sure that we create pay equity at a level where it becomes mainstream, where, where companies use pay equity software in a similar way that they use software to track how their customers use their website or to track how their customers buy certain things. They will utilize software to the same extent to make sure they pay people the same uh, equal pay for equal value, regardless of gender, race and ethnicity or any other employee characteristics. So that kind of it, it goes back to the purpose and the vision that still kind of is the North Star of where I'm moving over the next few years. The next question is, who has inspired you at UE uh, and or beyond? Oh, there's, there's, that's, uh, everyone has inspired. There's a lot of people who've inspired me. And the great thing about having access to LinkedIn and having access to a lot of resources around the world means that I've been able to connect with people who have inspired me. But one of the, one of the, Biggest kind of inspirations for me at UWE has been Christian van den Anker, who's been my um, supervisor for my thesis when I did my PhD. Uh, still is a kind of a, a person who's instilled a lot of kind of critical thinking in me, the human rights and social justice approach and lens on the world. Uh, so I'm great, very grateful to her for that. Uh, and in my career, I've, I've had different people who have kind of either put their trust in me or have done things differently and in a more interesting way and opened up my perspective to doing the same. Uh, did you have any tips on how to get rid of the fear of failure? Oh, that's uh, that's an interesting one. That's uh, it's an everyday exercise. It's experience. It's getting used to failure. So at the beginning, you fail once, or you get a one rejection, and it feels awful. Then you get a second one, your third one. By the time you have your fiftieth, it's just it's like part of life. It's like any other. So it's about 
just kind of letting yourself into it and experiencing it a few times so that you start getting comfortable with it. It's all about getting comfortable with failure. If I look back at the last five years, that's been a big part of it. And yeah, and acknowledging that failure is actually, I think it's acknowledging that failure is actually not a bad thing. Failure is a learning. And a somewhat linked question here, did you worry about income at the start of building your company? Very much so. Uh, actually, this September uh, was the last month where I had to do payroll on my own for the company. And now it's part of a bigger kind of bigger company because the company that acquired GapSquare is a FTSE 100. So there's systems around payroll and around revenue and finance that I finally don't have to worry about. But it's something that has been a worry for throughout the five years, sometimes more than others, because in a business kind of things go up and down. As you can imagine with COVID, income became even a bigger issue. And once you start employing people and getting to a point where you are also responsible, not only for your own income, but for the income of another 12 people, that's when it becomes a little bit more complex. But again, it goes back to having that kind of the, the vision and the mission at the forefront and guiding your actions based on that. And that has has helped a lot over the past few years. Good. This is a slightly longer question, so do bear with me. So you said that uh, discussions about equality should not happen in silos, e.g. women should not uh, should not only discuss with other women, but with everybody. However, if everybody's included in a discussion about women's rights in a company, for example, how would this discussion still be fruitful and more importantly, a safe space for women, especially when the majority of participants in the discussion could be men, as is still the case in many companies? In short, if everybody participates in discussions about equality, even if they aren't affected, how can it be guaranteed that the affected people get the space they need to voice their issues and ideas safely? I think there's, it's a balancing act. Uh, it's a balancing act in that you still need that safe space for people to be able to talk about their issues in, in a safe environment, absolutely. But it's also about making sure that other people come on this journey. And we found that data has been an interesting kind of joining up point for some people to come together on an issue. So whereas the gender pay gap used to be something that was very emotional and very political, people could say there is no such thing as gender pay gap, equal pay is a legal requirement. You can't pay people differently if they perform the same role or bring the same value to the company. Putting data in front of them in terms of the hard facts in, in this is the pay gap, this is what occupations it impacts, this is what departments it impacts, creates a bit of like it moves people a bit away from the emotional into more what are we going to do about it because all of a sudden it, it becomes about KPIs and if you look at larger corporations a lot of the thinking in there is structured around KPIs and people start to be a bit more comfortable around how they they look at these indicators how they look at their objectives and how they move together towards achieving those objectives but there is space that there's definitely needs to be space for for women or for ethnic minority groups or for LGBTQ groups to come together in a safe space. But there's also, I think, a need to bring everybody on this journey. And there's definitely a big need to move away from the lean in narrative, which was a narrative around women should lean in more or people of color should lean in more and put themselves forward more. 
and therefore putting the issue on them into the organizational structure and the structural inequalities that happen within an organization because of its policies, because of its processes, because of its inherited models of pay, so that it actually becomes more about the organization as a structure than about the individuals in order to achieve that parity and in order to achieve that diversity and inclusion. Uh, next question, any thoughts on how to best utilize university to guide you towards your goals? I, I love engaging with the university on this. So um, we've actually worked quite closely with Bristol Uni, with UWE, uh, with Harvard University, with Exeter University on looking at what does the wider aggregated data actually tell us about the pay gap and how can we utilize this data to understand where we, we can go next, how can we can prescribe some steps going forward. And one of my favorite things to do and one of my yay moments is when we can bring a lot of the theory into the applied world and apply that theory to a data set and actually help guide a company through some decisions that will actually move them closer to parity, move them closer to narrowing the pay gap. And I also absolutely love working with universities when it comes to engaging with young people. Um, I, I'm always so inspired to see young people committed and dedicated to a more sustainable future, to a more inclusive future, to a more transparent future, a future where they care not just about how much they get paid, but how much their colleagues and friends get paid so that they can ensure that they raise their voice for someone who's being paid less for a similar job or raise their voice to make sure that people get promoted when they should be promoted or recruited when they should be recruited. So. It's, it's engaging with the young people and also engaging with how we apply that theory and academic work into practice that makes working with universities really exciting. And my, my I did my master's in the States and I really enjoyed that kind of middle ground where practice comes with together with theory. And I've been trying to kind of carry that through after my PhD and ensuring that everything that I do, I bring a bit of theory and academic work into it. Was it uh, difficult to get into the tech industry because of competition and there being less females? It's a, a blessing and a curse. Um, a, a blessing because people will remember you. In a sea of, of, of men who are in tech, people will remember you because you stood out, because you were a bit different. But at the same time, a curse because you are different and because, for instance, investors and venture capitalists don't necessarily see you as fitting in the mold of someone they would usually invest in. So one, as a woman, you don't fit into that kind of genes or and 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 a polo shirt, Silicon Valley type person, Mark Zuckerberg. That was that's definitely a disadvantage because a lot of the investors still see that persona as the investable one, as the person who should be in tech and leading tech companies. Uh, it, there was an, an added layer of running a business that is focused on social justice and human rights and, and women's rights. So that kind of created slightly more difficulty around running a tech business around this. But but again, it goes back to the fact that it became memorable. Um, there's another thing that I was thinking about it today. Again, we hear a lot about tech for good, tech for good. So Gap Square sometimes would be a tech for good because it creates, it's a piece of software that helps businesses create 
pay parity um, and create diversity and inclusion. But at the same time, if something is tech for good, does it mean other tech is tech for bad? Shouldn't all tech be tech for good? We're in the 21st century. We're trying to build a society that is more inclusive, that is equal, that is sustainable. So all tech and all business should be tech for good and business for good. How do you stay motivated for your passions when you hit a rut or a period of unmotivation? That's it's it's the people. So surrounding yourself with smart people who you trust, I think, also builds that network of friendships with those people. And they continuously keep you motivated because they're excited about what they do. Uh, and that builds towards the vision and the purpose. And also, I mentioned this in another answer, it's impact, seeing that impact, seeing companies take decisions around pay equity, seeing companies make sure that they correct pay, that they try to understand why they pay people differently, that they try to understand why is it that they only recruit men in data science role and they primarily include in, recruit women in, for instance, legal clerk roles, that when they start thinking about these and basing these questions on, on the data that they've seen through your software, that is a massive motivator and, and a booster. Other than knowing that you're interested in human rights, what inspired you to start the company? I, I yeah, so I, I wanted to make an impact within the human rights space and I wanted to make sure that within the human rights space, it focuses on economic rights and it focuses on money and the economy. Um, and I, I'm even more excited about it now post COVID because we're starting to have more conversations about how we create a more fair economy, how we create a more inclusive economy, a more sustainable economy, and how I can see a lot of businesses around the world start to rethink what happens in the boardroom, whereas before, COVID, you would have a lot of kind of the boardroom meetings focus around turnover, profit, returns. Now you have a lot of companies like Unilever or other large businesses around the world bring in completely different numbers into the boardroom. They bring in numbers around fair pay and equal pay. They bring in numbers around well-being for their employees. They bring in numbers around sustainability and, and impact on sustainability and reducing carbon. So that kind of I even forgot what the question was. I got so carried away by this. This, this, this is, yeah. Now is that <laughs> beyond your sort of particular interest in human rights, what sort of the broad inspirations for starting the company? So it's the broad inspiration about, is it also about kind of making sure business focuses on the sustainable and making sure business focuses on creating fairness and being part of reshaping the world into the better world that we all want to see around us. Nice question here. How long did it take you to become successful? I understand it doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> am I? Am I successful? <laughs> I think there are different there's different ways to interpret successful. What does successful mean? Successful I thought I, I think there was a lot of success when we started attracting young people or attracting those people who are cleverer than us to be part of Gap Square. That was success. There was success in terms of getting companies to start using Gap Square and actually started thinking of tech as a solution to creating pay equity, diversity and inclusion. There was definitely a success and some kind of validation that happened in July when we got acquired by Expert HR in terms of that kind of validated that we were doing the right thing and actually it is interesting and it is applicable globally and worldwide. 
but it depends on how you define success because there's a there's there's a side there when does success mean that someone has decided you're successful and that they have validated that or does success mean when you achieve some milestones that you you want to achieve and and internally that makes you feel great because you've achieved those so it it depends on how you define success do you think you've been successful <laughs> um i think yes i think yes successful in in helping a group of people come together around an issue helping a lot of companies achieve a lot of things in terms of pay parity i would say yes but i'd say a lot of success is yet to be achieved and that's the part that really gets me excited Good. and just one final question in terms of your your soft skills what what kind of soft skills do you use to be successful that's an interesting one because I'm trying to argue that those soft skills are actually not very soft. And when we think about soft and soft skills, they seem like these fluffy, intangible things. Whereas the post-COVID world has demonstrated that those exactly are the core skills that we need in order to be successful in caring for other people and creating caring business environments and caring workplaces. But I think it's the kind of the, the passion, I don't know, this is not a soft skill really, but I think I pin it down to the passion and the drive I have for helping achieve a more fair world and bringing people together in a win-win kind of way to achieve that. Even about competitors, I don't like to think of them as competitors because ultimately they're trying to help us all achieve a more fair world and pay equity. So in a way, their partners, their collaborators. So it's bringing everyone together on the journey, I think is is one of those. That's great. And that's a very nice note to end on. Uh, so uh, can I thank uh, everybody who's uh, attended today, particularly those who have uh, asked questions. Uh, and to, of course, uh, Zara too. Zara, thanks so much for taking the time out to be with us uh, today. And just a final word, I hope uh, to our students out there, you're enjoying your first few days of uh, university and campus life and of course if you do have any questions or queries about anything that you're trying to do uh, please do ask for help uh, so thanks everyone thanks to zara and uh, see you at the next event thank you thanks everyone for more information about the inspire me lectures series including other podcasts from the series visit ue.ac.uk slash study slash block hyphen zero slash inspire hyphen me.